You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where there are numerous times that I wish that I could forget some of the music of my high school years. And welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Family of Podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Sean Ingle, and today, as usual, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of comics featuring Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite ringslingers from the DC Universe. Again, unfortunately, since Guy doesn't have his own solo comic, he's kind of relegated to, well, secondary roles. In fact, in the book that we're going to be covering in today, he only really has one minor appearance. But he's still there, so I'm going to count it. But the main thing we're going to be talking about today, aside from the Green Lantern comic number 80, is the idea of the crossover event Final Night. Back in 1996, there was a four-issue miniseries written by Carl Kessel and penciled by Stuart Eminem. I'm getting that right now, Eminem. And it uh, basically involved the DC Universe going up against the Sun Eater, a strange entity that obviously eats suns, and has decided to eat the Earth Sun, which obviously would cause a major problem because the Sun is a massive incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace where hydrogen is built into helium at temperatures of millions of degrees. And without that Sun, there'd be no life on Earth. And that's what the heroes are going to have to deal with in these next couple of episodes, or actually the issues of Final Night. Of course, the Final Night series, which came out in the month of uh, September, cover date November, was a big crossover event and uh, involved a lot of the heroes in the DC Universe. One of the big things that it did involve was the rehabilitation of a certain former Green Lantern. So, we'll be getting to that soon. But first off, we'll take a look at Greenland number 80, which is a crossover event like a lot of the books were this time with the Final Night series, where Kyle finally figures out just what the heck's going on with his lantern and that weird yellow light happening. Guess what? It actually ties into something that happened in the Gerard Jones run of the Greenland series as well, so 
kudos to Ron Mars for taking the idea that was placed forth there and bringing it forward into his own series. Then we'll be taking a look at two issues of Final Light, number one and number two, setting up the Sun Eater, setting up the Legion of Superheroes and their relationship to the overall storyline, and showing how the Man of Steel himself kind of fizzles out now that the uh, sun isn't there. It's an epic four-part crossover that I'm looking forward to covering, and hopefully you'll be looking forward to listening to it. In addition to that, I've got email from listeners as well as some, as well as some podcast promos to go through. So after we get through that, we'll go ahead and get into our coverage of the Final Night series, starting with Green Lantern number eight. to battle stations. Engage. Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, or they'll destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Can we just get down to it, please? Get us out of orbit! Why are you trapped? Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! 
Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honors of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully. And we are back. So let's go ahead and do as we always do when I'm doing a solo show and take a look at some of the wonderful emails that you listeners have written in to the show. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And although I've been able to catch up over the past couple episodes, I've still got a few letters from Mr. Scott Davis, our wonderful Canadian listener who's written it again. This one's entitled Green Lantern 70 and Heroes Quest, and Scott writes, Hi Sean, I hope you're enjoying your summer so far. Here are a few comments on some Green Lantern that I was able to read recently. Green Lantern 70, this was a great issue of Allison posing nude for Kyle, which, yeah, that's always great, and the subsequent argument between Kyle and Donna. To sum it up, I think the reason Donna was so peeved was because the way Allison left the room. Yeah, she, in the comic, really didn't do anything to make herself look like she was innocently there. I agree with that. Al- uh, Scott continues, Allison basically implied that there was something going on between the two of them by the flirty goodbye she gave Kyle and the fact that she was wearing Kyle's shirt on the way out. Donna isn't stupid. In fact, she was probably a flirt like Allison when she was younger, too. I could imagine that. In the end, Kyle's arguments fall flat. They've been going out for a while now, and at some point he was serious about this. His art would have... Uh, I'm sorry, if he was serious about his art, he would have mentioned that he likes to draw girls in the end. And his art sucks so far. Uh, if you're taking a look at what he did for uh, graphic design for Radio's Coffee, then yeah, I'll give you that. Drawing commercial action figures for big businesses is not real art. Sorry, Kyle, this relationship was doomed anyway. Donna was a bit of a crazy girlfriend, and she also comes with the responsibility of a kid, which Kyle is definitely not prepared for. Kyle should be having fun with younger girls like Arisa. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe the fun they... Imagine the fun they would have together. Well, uh, I don't think we're going to get any of that, but yes, uh, Donna and Kyle will be having some relationship ups and downs here in the next couple issues. We'll, we'll get to those. Continuing on, he goes, Hero Quest number one. This was a good issue with Kyle meeting Batman, Robin, and Alan Scott, but I didn't understand the Harlequin and Molly thing at all. Neither did I, sir. Neither did I. The cover is excellent, with Kyle flying in front of the bat symbol in the sky. You guys were hilarious about talking how Robin flew through the windshield of convertible. Eh, you're right. They made a mistake drawing Alex DeWitt with the short red hair. I'm surprised that Kyle even recognized him. The next snap death of the Dark Star on the last page was... Yep, this was setting up the uh, uh, ongoing storyline that led up uh, to the introduction of Grave in issue 75. So, yeah. Hero Quest number two, this was another good issue with Kyle being Captain Marvel. 
This was actually my introduction to Captain Marvel. I'm pretty much a movie to everything. And a recap of how Captain Marvel was brought up, but because he was so much like Superman was interesting. If you want to know about more about Captain Marvel, I'd definitely say go check out J. David Weider's podcast. Uh, or just go listen to J. David Weider. He's on Pazmatch or something. Hit him up on uh, email or on Facebook. He is a huge Captain Marvel. He has, I think, one of his... Uh, Actually, he was on Charlie Niemeyer, Niemeyer's show, uh, Superman from the Bronze Age, and they talked about the Captain Marvel uh, Superman crossover, the Treasury edition. So go take a listen to that if you want to learn more about Captain Marvel. Good observation that Kyle's hair was colored purple. I like the lesson learned by Kyle that he needs to learn how to use his mind instead of his fists. Yeah, the coloring, I think, was just one of those things at the time where they couldn't really pull off black or hair design so instead of doing that they did with the dark purple or dark blue to kind of do it and sometimes it looked kind of off it looked like they had a more punk colored hairstyle so there we go but yes this was part of the heroes s heroes quest arc where kyle learned they didn't solve everything with his fist so it was a nice building up of the character Back to Letter Ego's Heroes Quest number 3, this was another good issue to complete the Heroes Quest story arc. Wow, Paul Pelletier draws a hot Wonder Woman, and you're right, her hair is crazy big in this issue. I think I've made myself pretty much, uh, pretty much known of what I think of Pelletier's drawing of women, and yes, it is a very positive thing. This issue really shows what Kyle has a lot to learn because Wonder Woman was PO'd that her years of research were destroyed because of him. You can see the disappointment in her eyes. Kyle doesn't seem to be too concerned about it either and comes across as being a bit of a douche. Then Don is back on the last page. I can't wait to see where this is going. And he says finally in sort of respect, thanks again for sending me this issue up to me, Sean. Without it, I would have had a hole in my collection and I wouldn't have been able to follow along. I really appreciate it, Scott. Yeah, Scott, I'm glad to be able to get that issue up to you. It wasn't a problem. I actually found it pretty easily in my LCS. So uh, there you go. You can find these comics, I would think, without much difficulty. In fact, uh, there's a comic that I'm going to be reading uh, in an upcoming episode that I was just able to go to my LCS and pick up right there and then. Didn't really have to do any searching. So 90s comics aren't too difficult to find. Then our next letter from Scott is uh, entitled Guy Gardner Warrior, number 39 he writes again saying I'm almost at the end of the Great Guy Gardner Warrior series and I thought I'd pass on my comments on issues 39 through 42 Warrior 39 this was a great Christmas issue I wrote this far Aresia is once again looking pretty skanky hot in the cover of the elf outfit uh, yes Aresia I, I thought it was hilarious that you thought that the Phantom Stranger was eating the famous Canadian dish poutine Oh, delicious poutine. Do they serve it down in Oklahoma? Well, we have a restaurant here. It's a kind of uh, eclectic at a restaurant. Uh, a lot of people would say it's more of the sort of artsy hipster crowd, but uh, it is what it is. But they actually serve Oklahoma poutine, and it is the sort of gravy and cheese covered, but it's not like cheese curds, which I think is traditional poutine. So there you go. Uh, Scott continues, the apology by Guy's father for being a dick when he was younger was great. Guy hooking up with fire at the end was excellent. Warrior number 40, the morning after scene where Guy realizes that he just made the beast with two backs, my words not his, 
with fire in a drunken stupor was great. This was a decent issue with Grodden's clone monkeys, but you're right that the scene with Guy's mom is really out of character and takes me out of the story. I can't believe that Guy hasn't made a move on Jerome yet. She's all over him in every issue. What is he waiting for? Well, I think he feels just a kinship with her rather than a more physical relationship. Plus, it's a, another sign of Guy growing up and not becoming the sort of uh, lecherous type character that he was written in at JLI and earlier, like, Eagleheart issues. So, there you go. Warrior 41. This was an amazing issue with the parallel stories and the art. Uh, I'm sorry, the art of Mike Parabek is fantastic. It was nice to see Nort by Guy's side, too. Wow, it really made Olivia Reynolds a hilarious lesbian in this issue. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Bo was poking a few, uh, well, maybe poking a finger at it is not the right metaphor to use. He was kind of, uh, trying to take the piss out of the whole women's lib, uh, radical feminist idea and trying to make Olivia Reynolds into this overly empowered woman that was so overly empowered that she turned into just a sort of raving, stereotypical, angry feminist lesbian character. So uh, it was over the top and it was a bit uh, heavy handed, but also it was a bit funny as well. He goes on, Warrior number 42. This was a strange issue. I think it was meant to be funny turning Guy into a female, but it wasn't. Turning him into a runway model was just dumb, too. You made a really good point after the bad coloring of this issue. So after 42 issues and only two left, Guy's final battle is going to be against his clone, Joe, Dementor, Sledge, and Black Serpent. I don't even know who Black Serpent is. Sadly, we covered an issue of him, and I don't even know who he is either. Such a forgettable character. But, uh, Jeff Johns could probably bring you back. How about a fight between Warrior and Parallax? Huh? That could have happened as well, but uh, we'll be seeing more Parallax pretty soon. As it stands, Hal is up 2-1 in the battle between the two, so guys should have a chance to even things up. Thanks, John. Scott. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate you writing in. It's always good to hear from my listener in the Great White North, and always good for me to sneak some rush tunes into the show so there you go but that doesn't finish up emails for this time we've still got a couple of emails from frequent letter writer and host of the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror and earth destruction directive mr luke jacanetti luke writes in sean and it's entitled turn off the lights episode 75 he says again sean how odd of a juxtaposition we have a big blow-off over in Green Lantern and the series finale over in Guy Gardner in the same month. This was definitely a big month for GL readers back in the day. In Green Lantern, you specifically called Kyle saving of Ranagar an epic save. My first thought was that this was a direct demonstration of Kyle's heroics, in contrast to Hal not being able to save Ghost City. What do you think? Um, uh, maybe... The fact that Kyle saved a city versus Hal not saving Co-City is kind of comparable, but I think it loses a bit of comparison because Kyle was actually there. Hal wasn't able to save Co-City because he was nowhere around. So I would think that if Hal was around, he might have found a way to save Co-City. I think he's that good of a hero, but this is just uh, Kyle's big moment, and when you're stopping a city falling from out of orbit, it's a lot bigger than just, you know, 
punching some guy with a ring construct fist or, you know, even, you know, rescuing a train with a ring construct uh, train track. So uh, it is, in my opinion, a good epic save. Continuing on, he says, over in Guy Gardner, if you have to end your book, a throwdown with powered up major force is not a bad way to go. You and Thomas hit the nail on the head with this story being a reaffirmation of Bo Smith's concept of Guy Gardner as a warrior. I'm reminded of something I read from some fantasy game where about the difference between a warrior and a soldier. A soldier excels when working as part of the larger whole. One man with a spear and a shield is not much of a threat, but a dozen of them form a phalanx. A warrior fights alone, content to take on the world by himself. He favors force over tactics and is best left to his own devices. It's a shame that the end of the series feels so rushed. You know, that's a really good uh, description of the difference between a soldier and a warrior, and I think it defines Kyle, or not Kyle, it defines Guy's character really well. And yes, again, I do agree that the end of the series just seems like it came out of nowhere. I'm certain there were rumblings at the time, and I'm looking at sales figures. Guy Gardner Warrior wasn't really doing that well in comparison to some of the titles, but. To be honest, nowadays, it's doing better than some of the books that even aren't on the verge of cancellation. So, there you go. The times have changed, sir. Continuing on, he says, Still, even rushed, part of, part of me thinks that it's better to end the series with your regular writer than to leave the book, and then a new team come in and change everything wildly. One of my favorite books of the kids, as a kid was Alan Davis's Excalibur. After his big finale, Days of Futures Yet to Come, which wrapped up everything from the past five or six years and resolved the entire series, the book was summarily folded into more, it was folded more fully into the X-Men office. The very next issue saw most of the team decimated or changed off-panel. Ugh, horrible. And began a run of absolutely terrible stories which completely divorced from the original concept of the book. Would have rather the book ended with number 67 than continue on in that manner. I remain disappointed to see Guy Gardner's book end, Luke says, but intrigued where he'll be going in Green Lantern as the podcast continues. Bring on the annuals. Keep up the good work, Luke. And he says, P.S. Regarding Darkseid, who doesn't like a good cup of coffee? Well, yeah. If you could get a cup of coffee and maybe that would keep Darkseid from decimating your planet, a good cup of coffee would be a nice thing. But yeah... I hope that you've heard the uh, annuals by now. I hope you've listened to uh, my shows about them, and they are batting about 500 on them. So one good one, one not so good. So there you go. And our next letter again is from Mr. Jack and Eddie. He writes in with this one entitled, Kyle and Connor, a combination which will last for decades in the new golden age of Green Lantern, Green Arrow team-ups. I, I get what you did there, Luke. He writes in saying, Sean, wow, a team-up between Kyle Rayner and Connor Hawk? Do you get more 90s in this team-up? Who's doing the soundtrack? Pearl Jam and Soundgarden? Well, no, I think I just uh, put in some uh, music from the uh, Robin Hood original soundtrack and uh, My Chemical Romance. So, yeah, there you go. But hey, it's the 90s, so good to have Michael Bailey as a guest. Yep. Anytime that I can get Michael onto the show, it is always a win for me. I've got to say that. Probably a win for you as well, not having to listen to me as much. Anyway, Luke continues, The modern hard-traveling hero seems to embody the same social awareness, quote-unquote, with the original story that the original story strove for. 
The mid-70s and the relaxed rules of the comics code allowed for creators to really sink their teeth into these quote-unquote again social awareness stories, both at Marvel and DC. While I do not know that Cal or Connor being the same gravitas, bring the same gravitas as Hal and Ollie did in their time, I think that the pairing works well in the middle of Bill Clinton's United States, the quote-unquote sensitive New Age superheroes on the road in a flyover country. Again, you get more 90s than that, but it's in a good way, so I'm down with the concept. I have to agree with Michael about Kyle and Connor revealing their secret identities to each other being a good character moment, but not really having the sort of aha sort of moment to it, because people are just a, because they're just a couple of dudes. I was reminded of the Justice League Unlimited episode, The Great Brain Robbery, I love this one, where Lex Luthor and the Flash switch bodies. As Lex's Flash hides in the men's room of the Watchtower and says, at least I can discover the Flash's secret identity. I have no idea who this is. Classic. Oh, I love that episode. And, and it's uh, kind of odd that... Um, Michael Rosenbaum, the character who played the voice of the Flash in the uh, Justice League animated series, was the character who played Lex Luthor in the uh, Smallville, Smallville series. So a uh, bit of uh, interesting uh, crossover there as well. So Luke finishes up with, I can't wait to hear the second installment of the story, Luke. P.S. again, Michael used to shop at the Blue Koala. Is that anything like the Blue Dolphin from Police Academy? And I'm probably going to say no. It is probably nothing like that. I hope. But that wraps up email for this time. I've got a few extra emails in the email bag, quote-unquote email bag, in the Gmail account, technically, that I'll get to within the next couple of weeks. But I really do appreciate everyone writing in. Luke and Scott are constant letter writers, and it's always great hearing from both of them. If you guys want to write into the show, the email address, as always, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. You can write in about whatever you want. I'm open to talk about anything you want to talk about. Well, provided that's kind of related to the show. I mean, uh, as interesting as it would be to discuss your love of Cat Fancy Magazine, I'm not really into that, but there you go. And with that awkwardness out of the way, let's go ahead and step into the non-awkwardness of Green Lantern number 80. It was cover dated November 1996, released on September 5th, 1996. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for all that information. The cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Light in Darkness. The story was by Ron Mars. Guest pencils were J.H. Williams III. Guest inks were Mick Gray. Colors were by Pamela Rambo. Letters Chris Eliopoulos, Associate Editor Eddie Braganza, and Editor Kevin Dooley. Don't you hate it when you come home and find someone has shown up in your apartment unexpected? I'm certain that Green Lantern Kyle Rayner feels that way just now, as he has to deal with the recently released from the central battery, Dr. Light. Light monologues about wanting to find the one who trapped him and how he's so much more powerful and blah 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 blah. But Kyle tries to get him to notice that there's something a little more important than revenge that he needs to take notice of. But Light is so enraged that he won't listen to reason as he blasts Kyle with a golden beam of energy, which rips through his right shoulder. Trying to avoid another incident like what happened with Purgatory, Kyle leaps out the window and taunts Light to follow him. Kyle flies across the NYC skyline with Light in hot pursuit, but realizing that Light's powers might not 
might be able to help with the situation on the planet, Kyle once again tries to reason with him. Light still isn't buying what Kyle is selling. As he takes out all the construct, Kyle throws at him and turns them against him. Finally, Kyle lays it all out. The sun has gone out, and the earth only has a few days left before everyone dies. Light is skeptical at first until he realizes that it's near dark at 2.30 in the afternoon, and then he accepts what Kyle is saying as truth. Kyle tries to get Light to help, thinking that his powers might be able to somehow turn the tide. But ever the coward, Dr. Light dissipates his body and leaves the earth, probably to go to think of some rape fantasies involving the Teen Titans or Sue Dippany. Quite too soon. Frustrated, Kyle heads back to his apartment wondering what he can do. He wonders how people in his apartment are coping with the situation as he charges his brain for what might be the last time. Kyle then heads out of his apartment to his back on again girlfriend, Donna Troy. Kyle tells Donna about his run in with Dr. Light, and Donna relates her unease with not being able to help with the sun eater. Kyle consoles her and says that she should go spend time with her son because there might not be time to spend with your family very soon. Donna asks about Kyle's family, and Kyle says he's, he could go see his mother, but they've been so distant that it would feel out of place to go see her now. Donna thinks that it might be a good thing that if someday Kyle could take her to meet his mother, but she's unsure that there will be a someday. Kyle hopes there will be, but right now no plan has worked, and no hero on Earth has made a difference. And that little statement gives Kyle an idea, one that might save us all. Kyle tells Donna how important she is to him and how much he loves her, and then he heads out to find something, anything, that will save the planet. Now, this book does bear the cover title of a Final Night crossover. In fact, at the top of it, it says The Final Night under, above the Green Lantern uh, masthead. But even though its release date comes out at the same point in time that the first issue of Final Night does, it kind of seems to be placed kind of in the middle of it because things are kind of going downhill. Uh, the Earth is cooling. The sun has been out for a while. This looks like it's happening probably in or around the third issue of Final Night, but I can't really tell. Uh, Timeline-wise, it's not really set in a specific time, but the whole timeline of Final Night only takes place over the course of a few days. So trying to put it at a specific point in uh, the Final Night timeline is kind of iffy, and I don't think it's really necessary anyway. I do, however, like the fact that it resolves the issue of Dr. Light being trapped in the central battery, but it's not really consequential to the story. It's not a thing that really needed to be dealt with, but it's nice that Ron Mars actually took that idea that uh, Gerard Jones did in the early run of Green Lantern and brought it forward into this part of the issue. So, again, credit to Ron Mars as a writer. Uh, Starting off with my notes of the cover... Uh, it's a decent cover with uh, Dr. Light looking all 
creepy and popping out of the lantern. J.H. Uh, Williams, I think, has improved quite a bit from the uh, Guy Gardner Warrior issue he did with Black Serpent. Again, we're back to him. But there are still some points of walkiness in his art. It looks a lot better, like I said, but I don't think it's up to his standards that you're seeing today now in the Batwoman books that everyone seems to be raving about his art. So I guess we're seeing some of his early stuff here. There you go. Page one, and even though this is some of Williams's earliest stuff, it's gotten a lot better, like I said, since the Guy Gardner issue. His lines are a lot crisper, and his character designs are a lot are a lot better. The one thing he does really weird, though, is teeth. A lot of times his teeth look off, but other than that, the artwork's really nice here. It's a weird splash page, though. It's not a full-page splash. It's more just a circle, kind of like a button with a Green Lantern and Dr. Light facing off against each other. So, kind of weird opening splash. Page 3, panel 5. I enjoy on this page how Kyle is trying to reason with Dr. Light, even though he's just been trapped in the central battery all this time and has come out and is acting all bat guano crazy. So, Kyle's again trying to avoid having to fight with him, as well as filling in on the whole, oh, eating of the sun thing so yeah i also enjoy on page four how kyle is kind of unconcerned that dr light is pulling up a yellow spectrum of light to attack him with because ever since the beginning of kyle's run the whole yellow thing hasn't really worked on him it's been touched on on prior issues but it's never really out and out been said why it's happened I mean, I know there's been retcons currently to why it didn't happen, but at the time, I think it was just since Kyle owned the last Green Lantern ring, the whole yellow impurity thing was thrown to the wayside. Page 8, I never really thought about this, but it makes sense. Dr. Light is able to co-opt Kyle's constructs simply because they're based on light, The uh, and Dr. Light is able to control them now, so... This would really make him an effective enemy against Green Lantern. So it's nice to see that uh, Kyle's constructs are being turned against him and the fact that Dr. Light would be a credible enemy for him. And We'll see how he gets used throughout the rest of the series. But our, after, after all the goings-on, we finally get Kyle convincing Dr. Light to see that the sun is actually being... Well, it looks like it's being eclipsed on this really beautiful page where Cal and Dr. Light are kind of sitting on the top of this church or this clock tower, and the sun is in the background being eclipsed by the sun eater. So it's a nice image here, and Dr. Light, I think, is finally getting the idea that Kyle's not lying to him and something's going on with the sun. Unfortunately, what does he do on page 11? Oh, he pulls the wimp move and decides to essentially go to who knows where he uh, evaporates into the ethereal void or whatever which uh, basically shows that the character of dr light is pretty much a coward which i guess will be run with in the uh, identity crisis version of him where he's not only a coward but a rapey pervert coward page 13 get a nice uh well, it's kind of a six-panel grid inside of the page that shows what the uh, denizens of Radu's apartment are going on about. During this whole thing, each of the individual apartment members is 
dealing with what's going on in their own way. We've got Allison here. looks like she's praying. We've got the blind uh, black guy. I don't think he's been named yet, just playing saxophone. The sort of hippie elderly lady going through her books and reading them. The uh, college student who had the Charlie Chaplin cut out uh, watching movies. We've got the uh, two lesbian characters holding each other in bed. And then we've got an image of Kyle coming into his apartment. It's it's really nice artwork by Williams. Things are a little bit off on the two lesbian characters. The one character looks a bit mannish, the blonde-haired one. But otherwise, Williams' art is definitely improved. And I'm actually enjoying it through the book. Then on page panel four, I'm sorry, page 14, panel three, we get the example that I quoted earlier about J.H. Williams not being able to do teeth properly. Uh, Kyle's mouth really looks off, and he's just got a bunch of lower teeth. It looks really, it looks really odd. I mean, he looks, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of derpy or kind of, I really don't know. Moving on to page 16 through 19, uh, much like Daryl Banks did a few issues ago, and this is the sequence between Donna and Kyle, Williams does really good with drawing the figures of characters, but he seems to have a problem getting their facial expressions right. This has been an argument I've seen that I've leveled against Daryl Banks over the past issues, and he's overcome it, so I'm assuming J.H. Williams were overcoming it as well, or will be overcoming it as well. However, one thing I can't fault the book for is Ron Mars's writing. Ron does a good job of writing the romantic dialogue between Kyle and Donna without it feeling too cloying or too treacly. Uh, it's actually really good. In fact, I'll give you an example of it. On this panel we go, we've got Kyle saying, I should go. We have to regroup and figure out what our next step is. And Donna says, as much as I want you to stay with me, I understand. There are more important things than the two of us. And Kyle replies back, a little more pressing at the moment, not more important. Nothing is more important to me than us. It's really sweet. It's really, it really shows the development of Kyle's character from being, like I've said in prior episodes, the sort of stuck up, self-interested, stereotypical 90s, 20 something to a more rounded, more caring, more heroic person. And I love to see the development of this character. I'm glad that I get to see it. But that finishes up my notes for the Green Lantern issue. I'm going to take a break and plug a promo in here. And when I get back after the promo, I'm going to start in my coverage of the four-part miniseries Final Night, which dealt with how the world deals with a Roland Emmerich level of disaster. Hopefully it'll be better than anything Roland Emmerich has ever put out. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't 
fast enough. So it's better to just set oh, it up. Oh, okay. It, do, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. well, my pre- okay. It definitely built, built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. And we're back. And what you just heard there was the new promo for Back to the Bins. It's back and all new with uh, Dr. Bill Robinson, Paul Spataro, and Scott Gardner heading up the Back to the Bins thing. With uh, Michael Bailey coming on and whenever he can. And actually, uh, they've had some guest spots as well, including a guest spot with myself where I actually talked about an independent book that really wasn't all that independent. It was a fun time being on the Back to the Bins show, and it's one of the best shows on the Two True Freaks Network, bar none. Definitely go check out Back to the Bins if you're in any way interested in just random comic book goodness. But speaking of comic book goodness, we're going to take a look at a good comic book here in Final Night Part 1. It was cover dated November 1996 and released on September 5th, 1996. Had a cover price of $1.95 US and $2.75 Canada. The title was Dusk. The story was by Carl Kessel, or Kiesel, however you want to pronounce it. The penciler was Stuart Immonen. Inker Jose Marzan Jr., colorist Lee Lowridge, letterer Gaspar, Gaspar Saladino, assistant editor Ally Morales, and editor Dan Thorsland. As the sun sets on the bustling city of Metropolis, people on the street look upward to see that there is more going on than just the sun setting. In fact, there seems to be an unscheduled eclipse, as well as an alien craft in the big apricot sky. The ship crash lands in the city's harbor, and the exiting alien is greeted by none other than Metropolis's defender, Superman. Flanked by members of the Legion of Superheroes, the Man of Steel asks the visitor if he comes in peace, and the alien responds in an undecipherable tongue. Unfortunately, the Legion members can understand her, and what she's saying isn't good news. Superman asks the Legion what's going on, and Saturn Girl telepathically translates the alien's words so that all might hear her. Her name is Dusk, and she's traveled from her homeworld that was destroyed by the Sun Eater. And now, it's on its way to Earth's side. Cut to Star Labs, where the assembled heroes of Earth are listening to the same tale. Dr. Falker of Star Labs confirms the story and shows the assembled satellite imagery of the approaching anomaly. Barda and Mr. Miracle posit the idea of channeling the Sun Eater into a boom tube to teleport it into the edge of the source, while Superman gathers heroes for a backup plan of creating a decoy sun. Of course, Guy Gardner is skeptical about it, because Guy's being written by anyone but Bull Smith, as Superman directs him and many other heroes to prep for panic on the planet. Out in space, the Alpha Team and Mr. Miracle plan to open a boob tube to divert the immense Sun Eater as Superman and the Beta Team watch nearby an Alpha Centurion spaceship. All of a sudden, things go all kablooey, and Alpha Team is transported away from the explosion. Wondering what happened, Miracle says that the boom tube couldn't contain the Sun Eater because it doesn't exist in this dimension. This leaves it up to Superman and the Beta Team, who use all their energy powers to try and create an artificial sun. The plan works, but only too well, as the Sun Eater not only absorbs the energy of the sun, but also the the hero's body energy as well, knocking most of them out. And with both plans failing to succeed, the heroes and villains of the planet Earth prepare for the worst.
This is a really great opening to an epic story that will essentially take Earth's most powerful hero out of the mix right from the beginning. Since Superman gets his power from storing solar energy, having the Sun Eater come by and essentially block out or envelop the Sun will essentially sidebar him for most of the series. However, that doesn't mean that he's going to be completely ineffectual. He is still Superman, he's just not going to be as powerful as he is. But this does play into the series, and it's kind of an interesting choice. The fact that Superman, being the most powerful being on Earth, is now having to rely on everyone else to get things done, really makes it in even more dire consequences for this story. Superman's not going to be guaranteed to save everyone, because essentially... Superman can't be powered enough to save everyone, so it's a nice conceit that they're throwing forth in the beginning of the story that uh, really works well throughout the entire series. But moving on to notes, we've got a really nice image of the assembled heroes standing on top the Daily Planet building with icicles forming around the ring of the Daily Planet, and uh, it's a really nice look, but it's also, I've got to imagine, a setup for the upcoming Grant Morrison run of JLA. In fact, right at this time, I think the Midsummer Night's Dream storyline that was written by Mark Wade. I'm trying to remember who else was doing that. I think it was Mark Wade and Fabian Nicieza, if I'm pronouncing that right. We're writing Midsummer's Nightmare. And I think issue three just came out this month as well. It wasn't a tie-in to Final Night in any way. It was own sort of storyline. But that was basically the setup for the entire Morrison JLA. And what we have on the here on the cover is essentially most of the members of the Morrison JLA. Starting from left to right, we've got Batman, Flash, Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and Martian Manhunter. And I really like the way that they're conveying the cold on the cover with all of the heroes who have cloaks, uh, Batman, or cloaks or capes, Batman, Martian Manhunter, and Superman, just with their capes wrapped around them trying to keep warm. Now, Granted, you would think that everyone but, Bat everyone but Batman wouldn't need a cape to be warm, but there you go. Of course, Diana, she doesn't care. She's in her bustier and her bikini briefs, you know. She was sculpted from clay, so cold doesn't matter to her. Honey Badger don't care. Page one, we get a really nicely drawn view of Metropolis with the LexCorp Tower and the Daily Planet in, in plain sight here, and I'm thinking that might be the WGBS building as well. Unfortunately, my Metropolis landmark uh, knowledge isn't as great as others, but it's really well done. Uh, the perspective's really nice, and it kind of apes New York City. You can kind of get that feel because it looks like Manhattan Island to some extent, but it's distinct enough that you can tell where it is, especially with the big tower with the L on it and the Daily Planet being there. On page two, I know it's a trope of the Superman books, but I'm wondering if people in Metropolis ever get tired of hearing someone looking up in the sky and saying, look, up in the sky. Do you think that people who live there just get irked when tourists come around and say, look up in the sky, and they just want to punch them or something? I know I probably would. That's just me, though. Page four. Of course, this being a Green Lantern podcast, I don't really get to talk about Superman all that much in the show, but when he does show up, I want him to look like and act like he does on page four here. This panel with him with his hand on his hips, 
with the cape flowing and everything is just really great work from Eminem. And also the way he's being portrayed in the writing. He's being intimidating, but being compassionate at the same time. He's saying in one panel, he says, for your sake, I hope you come in peace. And then the next panel, he's asking, can you understand me? Can you even hear me? Perfect, perfect representation of Superman. Just the way I like it to be done. Page five, I'm guessing this has something to do with zero hour. It, it always has something to do with zero hour in this period of time. But there are some Legionnaires who are stuck here, including Saturn Girl. Uh, it looks like Cosmic Boy, Brainiac 5, Lightning Lass, I think. Uh, I don't know. So that I want to say I'm not up on my heroes. There's someone with a fire costume. And then there's a weird floating centipede with... It looks like Orko's hood. If anyone knows who the heck that is, let me know. Email me. Page 7, we get the explanation for why the entire series is going on. It's delivered by Dusk, who's now been able to be translated via uh, Saturn Girl's mental telepathy thing. And she says, There's no time at all. Your world is about to die. The Sun Eater is coming. With sorrow, I can only stay for a short a short distance ahead of it, for its course is impossible to predict as the weather. But I've observed its many dark deeds many times, and I can say for certainty that it's coming for your son now. If it's not in your solar system at present, it will be in a short time. It will envelop your sun and steal its light and heat from you. Your crops will, will wither, your waters will freeze, and that is only the beginning. There is no way to stop it. I offer this warning as I have a hundred times before, with the hope that you may escape this doomed world. But I've lost many precious hours since my arrival, and I fear more and more that your people will suffer the same fate as mine. So essentially, yeah, Earth is pretty much boned, and this person is the harbinger of very bad things, which may not work out for her as we see coming later on into the book. Page 8, we get a really nice but kind of small gathering of DC superheroes. I thought, you know, there'd be a lot more here, but maybe we're just seeing one section of them. But, you know, we've got the members of the JLA, we've got the Legions, members of Legion, we've got various villains, including Dr. Polaris, uh, we've got Tachyon, who I guess is a new character that was just brought in, Alpha Centurion, the Phantom Stranger, and what's really cool, we've got the Marvel family as well. We've got Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, and Captain Marvel Jr., so it's always awesome to see them in the comic. Page 10, panel 4. I wanted to point out this this piece in the comic. It's kind of amusing. As Barda, a member of the New Gods, points out that they're going to use the Mother Box to boom tube the Sun Eater away from where it is, uh, she basically puts Mr. Miracle out there and says that he's going to be able to do this. The look on Mr. Miracle's face is that sort of look of shock when someone says that you're going to do something and you don't know whether or not you're going to be able to do it. It's really great artwork here. I mean, because Mr. Miracle's face is completely covered by the mask, you only see the eyes, but there's so much expressed in those eyes and the way they're sort of widely opened that you know that he's thinking, uh maybe you shouldn't be talking out of turn for me. I don't know if I can pull this off. So great artwork here on this panel. But then on page 11, we get to the annoying part of the book, uh, where Wonder Woman suggests that they should probably ask for the specter to aid in what's going on with all this. And guys turn into the same character that he was written as in the JLI run. 
garner all the nuances and all the character development that came forth in the Bo Smith run. Even though he's still the warrior persona, he's he's still being portrayed as the jerk the way he was written in this Steve Englehart, Green Lantern run, and the Giffen de Mateus Justice League International run. It makes me sad. Page 12, I think it's interesting that even villains like Dr. Polaris, who's got the more Magneto-looking Dr. Polaris helmet on from the whole um, Underworld Unleashed storyline, well, even a bit before that, that Dr. Polaris is here to help out as well. And uh, it's kind of interesting that Captain Adam says that Amanda Waller sent him to help out, so I've got to wonder if Polaris was actually a part of the Suicide Squad at the time. Again, my Suicide Squad reading isn't as up to uh, date as it probably should be. But then moving on to page 13, the artwork here of the Sun Sun Eater is beautiful and disturbing at the same time. It looks like they just took a, a couple of blots or a couple of drops of ink and dop, dropped it into water and just spun it around. It's got that sort of inky feel of these tendrils shooting out of it and a spiraling into the center. It's a nice piece of artwork. I can only assume it's done digitally here because it looks too organic and natural to be actually drawn or painted. Maybe that's just me. Now, on page 15, there's a page here where the Phantom Stranger actually goes to meet with the Spectre, who's doing his whole uh, vengeance thing and making a guy jump out the window. So, good on you, Spectre. But the Phantom Stranger actually tries to contact the Spectre and get him to be a part of this. And I couldn't really find a way to naturally put it into uh, the storyline, so I'm kind of talking about it here. Basically, as I said, the Phantom Stranger finds the Spectre, teleports there, and says, look, this darkest night is approaching. Can you do anything to help us out? And of course, the Spectre is being aloof, and the Phantom Stranger calls him on it and says, you know, you could do something if you'd want to do it, but the Spectre decides that, no, it's not his business. So... I guess the Phantom Stranger will just have to go back to eating his poutine and watching episodes of Kids in the Hall while the Earth dissolves around him. Page 17, I thought it was a clever, if not very comic booky idea of having all the energy-blasting heroes try and build a duplicate sun to lure the Sun Eater away from the actual sun, with a Green Lantern using his ring to sort of contain all the energy inside of it. In comic theory, it sounds like a good idea and works. I'm certain if you actually put it to scientific uh, testing, it would work as well as pretty much anything in these books. But it's an interesting comic book theory idea that would work for the story. Unfortunately, it seems to backfire on the characters. Page 21, panel 3. I guess this is a point in time where Lex is kind of on the run for whatever reason and he's actually married to a woman named erica who according to my research on wikipedia is actually known as the contessa so i guess this is his wife who he has a who has a controlling interest in uh, lexcore as well so i don't really know about this but i'm certain michael and jeffrey will probably be covering this well they'll definitely be covering this on an upcoming episode of from crisis to crisis so go listen to that folks but then on page 22, I like how the book sort of ends in the way that it began with a shot of uh, Metropolis from the same angle, except this time 
the sun, I guess, is rising. However, it's been completely eclipsed by the sun eater, and everything now is in darkness. But we get the image of the Lexcore building, the Daily Planet, and the WGBS building all in shadows here. Uh, the artwork doesn't have to be as detailed, but it's a great bookend to, or it's a great beginning and ending to the book that parallel each other, with one being, you know, the light side of it and the other one being the dark side of it. So, really good, really good storytelling throughout the book. That does it for my notes for this one. I'm going to take another quick break, get a drink, and as soon as I get back from this promo, we'll go ahead and take a look at Final Night Part 2. Throughout its history, people have found this place disquieting. Strange and unexplained phenomena run rampant, so much so that it's been called the city that lives by night. And the city that lives by night needs a darker form of protector. Black Talon. Please don't kill me! You tell them all. Nocturne is the Talon's hunting ground. Your kind had best look elsewhere for prey. Nightbreaker. What was this? Some sort of joke? No! Gloria, this sounds crazy, I know, but she did shoot me. Something happened. I'm still not sure what, but people don't recognize unless I truly concentrate on their wanting to see me. It's like I'm invisible. Fairyman. The ghosts you refer to have done more for me than you two have. They've given me my sight back. <laughs> They've given me better than my sight back. Dreamcatcher. Witches, warlocks, mages, magicians, shamans. Call us what you like. It's all the same. We've helped when we can. Eluded those too ignorant to understand that magic isn't evil. And it's made us sensitive to others who have magic running in their veins. A quartet of heroes standing together must face a new menace. This can be painless, you know. You ain't putting the fronters on me, Slag. Just take your shot, yeah? I was hoping you'd say that. Who is going to use the roughest elements of the city? You that rose red bitch? That's right. I'm not even mad at you for adding the bitch part. Because I am. And I know you guys are some of the nastiest, toughest, roughest, meanest bastards in this town. Am I right? Yeah! yeah! Good. Because I have need of you. To send this city. Come on! To end tonight. Down New Roads to Hell. New Roads to Hell, the first Shadow Legion adventure by Thomas DJ. A new novel coming soon from Airship 27. For more information, including character sketches and behind-the-scenes information, visit the Nocturne Travel Agency at welcometonocturne.blogspot.com and airship27.com. And we're back to take a look at Final Night Part 2. This was cover dated November 1996 and released on September 11, 1996. The cover price was $1.95 US and $2.75 Canada. The title this time out was Dark Who Grows the Night. The story was by Carl Kessel. Stuart Inmanen penciled it. Inked, it was inked by Jose Marzan Jr. This time colorist was Patricia Mulvihill. Letterer was Gal Gaspar Saladino, assistant editor Ali Morales, and the editor was Dan Thorsten. Pretty much the same group as last time. Reporting on the disappearance of the sun, WGBS reporter Jimmy Olsen recaps what happened in the last issue until he's interrupted by breaking news. It seems that fugitive Lex Luthor has landed at Metropolis Airport and is willing to do whatever he can to help stop this catastrophe. This is something that the Man of Steel, Superman, hopes is true as he and Luthor shake hands and vow to go down fighting. 
Cut to Oracle, who is trying her best to crisis manage while fighting a lack of sleep. Wonder Woman reassures her that she's the right person for the job, as we witness her, Barda, Captain Marvel Jr., the Ray, and Guardian rescue people from a fire started in Gateway City. After doing what they can, an elderly woman approaches the Ray and asks him to take her back to her faraway family. Half a world away, Vandal Savage has broken into the Louvre to steal, what else, but the Mona Lisa. However, expecting these types of petty crimes, Batman enters the room and confronts the immortal interloper, saying that he will take him down. Savage, however, begs to differ as he pulls a submachine gun and unloads on the Dark Knight. But the bullets don't connect, and Batman entangles the Savage in a batline, surprising the villain. It seems that Batman had the aid of Superman, who not only brought him over to Paris, but also cut the bullets before they could hit him. But with the sun out, Superman's powers reserves are draining all too quickly. This seems to please Lex Luthor, who set up shop at Star Labs and is working on a plan to deal with the Sun Eater. Lex feels that he needs to gather data from the entity, and he's come up with a very green way to do it. Meanwhile, Justice Society members The Flash, Wildcat, and Liberty Bell are getting with Ted Knight to see if he wants to help with crowd control. The former Starman declines, but wishes his teammates the best of luck and Jay returns the sentiment, saying that this is not any different from any other time that they put the costumes on. Out in space, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner is on his way to the sun, while Luthor and Brainiac 5 monitor the sensors Lantern is carrying to examine the Sun Eater. GL enters the area where the sun is supposed to be, and starts transmitting data back to Earth. But the Ebon Entity is draining Green Lantern's energy too fast, and Brainiac recalls him from his mission. This doesn't set well with Luthor, who orders Saturn Girl to tell Lantern to keep gathering data about the Sun Eater. But this might prove problematic, as Saturn Girl can now find no trace of Green Lantern. Back at Metropolis Harbor, Dusk and Black Canary are looking over the remnants of worlds that she has visited, yet failed to save. Canary reassures Dusk that they'll find a solution, when the duo is set upon by an angry mob who believe that Dusk is the one who brought the Sun Eater to doom them all. The women hold their own, but the crowd is too much for them, and one rioter pulls a gun and plans to shoot the proto-bird of prey. However, this fails to happen as the Flash, Nightwing, and Robin arrive on the scene to maintain order. But sadly, the fastest man alive isn't immune to a Louisville slugger to the back of the head, and in the incurring melee, Dusk is dragged away by the mob. At the same time, the Ray is taking the elderly lady from earlier back to her South American village. Dropping her off, Ray realizes that this, these people don't deserve this fate, and flies skyward to try and create light and warmth with his powers. Back in Metropolis, the mob has captured Dusk, and are planning to burn her alive. The alien screams that she's never met a more spiteful race, but before she becomes an, ex an extraterrestrial ember, a masked hero calling himself Pharaoh steps in to save her life. I don't think I mentioned in the last issue, but this entire story is supposed to take place in the course of less than a week. In fact, at the end of the book, there is a, quote, emergency alert message from Star Labs in the sort of uh, setup of what would be Internet Explorer of the, of the time. 
It's probably a bit more AOL because I don't know if Internet Explorer was all that popular or was even around during Windows 95. I, I should go check, but uh, I'm too damn lazy. But it's an interesting little additional piece to put at the end of the book that uh, shows people about the rescue efforts, tells them about what's going on, and gives you a sort of timeline of what's going on in the book uh, and the timeline of what could be to come with the oceans freezing eventually, crops dying, and then eventually, within five days, the Earth becoming completely uninhabitable. So it's very effective way to get the message across that time is passing through the storyline without essentially having to have the 24 ticking clock on every page. So it's a nice little setup they have up there. But as for notes, starting off the cover, it's a, another really good cover with a very symbolic image on here of a sign uh, painted on it uh, with the words painted on it, uh, the end is near, and around the sign, which is in a giant snowdrift, are draped the cowl of Batman, the cape of Superman, and the lasso of Wonder Woman. So it's essentially showing that even the world's greatest heroes are incapable of saving us from the end of the world it's it's a pretty dire cover but uh it's a very effective one in my opinion page three you know that the entire storyline is desperate when you get a glorious one page splash of lex luthor and superman saying that not only are they going to work together but they're actually shaking hands on it so things have uh, really turned grim and it looks like the fact that the heroes are involving villains like Lex Luthor, who I'm assuming at the time has done some pretty horrible things, that they are looking for any resources or solutions that they can from pretty much anyone. Page 5, panel 2. Nice little Easter egg here where Wonder Woman and the assembled heroes go to try and put out the fire in uh, Gateway City. The fire is listed at the corner of Marston and Byrne. Obviously, Byrne is a reference to uh, Superman sort of uh, writer John Byrne. And Marston, I'm assuming, is uh, in reference to uh, William Moulton Marston, the uh, creator of Wonder Woman. So nice little Easter egg put in there. But then on page 7, we find out that the chaos is starting to overtake a lot of humanity. And we find out that the fire was actually sent by drunken revelers who just wanted to party because they believed the end of the world was coming. So... There you go. But on the same page, we get a beautiful shot of Wonder Woman just doing some amazing superheroics as she flies in a fire truck into the uh, midst of all this chaos. It's just really glorious artwork here by Eminem. Um, this is the first time I've actually experienced any Eminem art, and I'm really enjoying it. He gets all the characters dead on. Page 8, panel 2. There's kind of a bad pun here as... The rescue efforts are dying down, and Wonder Woman is contacting Oracle. She tells her, I wish you could see it, Oracle. A heartbreaking five-year-old and partiers who are saying it's the end of the world as they knew it, but they feel fine. And then Wonder Woman pauses and says, hmm, that's a song? Okay, if you say so. I don't think Wonder Woman is that out of the loop that she wouldn't recognize a really popular song by R.E.M., but there you go. Page 10, panel 4. Now, this is still the pre-Morrison Batman who was able to essentially predict everything. Uh, 
this is prior to that, so it's kind of odd that he obviously knows that Vandal Savage would be going for the Mona Lisa. But it's also really odd here that he lets Vandal Savage just try and gun him down. So you've got to wonder why he's not getting shot here. But then on page 11, it makes sense that Superman was the one who caught the bullets. And it also makes sense that now he's losing streak to the sun going out. Uh, however, it doesn't make sense that Batman used Superman to transport him from wherever, I'm assuming, Metropolis to the Louvre to stop Vandal Savage. It's one of those wonky sort of things of transportation where if you think about it too hard, it's going to really eat at you because essentially Superman's having to carry either Batman in his arms like he's holding Lois Lane or drag him behind him or have Batman ride on his back or something weird for him to get him across the Atlantic Ocean. Try and get that image out of your head. Page 12, we finally get Luther's chance to shine, and despite the fact that he could be the one who could rescue the entire planet, his ego is still overwhelming everything he wants to do. Throughout this entire book, Luther thinks he's the smartest man around, yet his ego is always going to be the one thing that leads to his downfall. Moving on to page 13, I like the nice little vignette with the members of the JSA. We've got uh, Jay Garrick, Liberty Bell, and Wildcat coming to meet Ted Knight, the former Starman, asking if he'd like to come help out during this time of crisis. And it's just a nice little thing. It's nice to see the elder statesmen of the DCU still around. And I'm not certain if this is the actual original Liberty Bell, but I know it's the original Jay Garrick and uh, not Ted Core, Ted Grant as Wildcat. So it's nice to see the JSA members. Always good to see them in the book. And I think they're done really well here. And, and Jay is always a wonderful character. I love me some Jay Garrick Flash. Then skipping ahead a bit to page 16, we find out that Green Lantern has suddenly become lost uh, as he was flying in to probe the Sun Eater. And that sounds dirty. He was flying in to examine the Sun Eater with the probe and suddenly he's no longer in contact. So I'm wondering where in the storyline that this falls in with uh, things that will be coming on, because Kyle has to go contact a certain person who's going to help out with the final night, and if he's no longer there, how is he going to get to do that? But I think all will be resolved in the next couple issues. Page 17, here's where the book gets a little bit heavy-handed with the zealotry and bigotry. We've got a crowd of people with torches, I don't see pitchforks though, who are coming after Dusk simply because she landed here. They think she brought the Sun Eater and they're going to try and take her out. So it's not Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Green Arrow, Green Lantern heavy-handedness, but it's a bit heavy-handed for what we've seen in the book so far. And then again on page 18, panel 4, we get more wonky superhero traveling as this time the flash brings nightwing and robin in from metropolis into metropolis from gotham so i know it's probably not that far distance i don't exactly know where the two are in relation to in relationship to each other in the uh dc university united states but still this essentially means that wally had to carry both nightwing 
and Robin essentially like on his back or in his arms as he runs really fast from one place to another. Try not to, you know, I can understand Wally doing it because he's in tune with the speed force and all that, but if you're accelerating Dick Grayson and Tim Drake at the level of speed that the Flash needs to get to this place as quickly as possible, you're essentially crushing all the organs inside of them, and it, uh, it's best not to think about it. Page 19, panel 1. I'm glad to see that there's some other hero aside from Hal Jordan who seems to like getting hit in the head with baseball bats and knocked out because Wally channels his Uncle Hal on this panel and as he decides to get, well, doesn't decide to get, he gets hit in the head with a baseball bat and kind of dazed at the time. But it's a nice scene which allows uh, Dick and Tim to take on the uh, crowd, which, which is always awesome. Page 20, as Ray takes the woman back to her unnamed South American country, we could call it Chile or, you know, Uruguay or Peru or whatever, but I tried to use Google Translate, and I used a various different translations, not only Spanish, but Portuguese and a couple other languages, and it doesn't seem to be as good as it's touted. In fact, uh, some of the translations come back to or come back as, I think not, like a ray of hope, and this is how Lekwe here, I don't know. Then uh, someone tell the cello and lupa, this last night will not be as dark as we thought. So, Google, you still got a bit of work to do on your translation. I know it's sometimes difficult to do, but yeah, there you go. And then finally on page 22, we get Dusk rescued by someone named Pharaoh, who looks like he's dressed in a Legionnaire's costume and might have a relationship to another person who had the name Pharaoh in his name. Well, I'm not really certain about it, but I think I know someone who does, and I'm probably going to try and get with them and have them answer that question. But that does it for coverage here. I'm going to take a quick look at the ads in the book, starting with, uh, since all of them came out around the same time, I'm going to just go through the uh, last final night book starting with the uh, front inside cover we've got oh the beginning of the taste of the rainbow ads and we've got a funnel filtering the rainbow out and at the bottom come out the juicy delicious little hard shell candies skittles so taste the rainbow folks it it was out there wasn't as goofy as people sweating the rainbow so there you go a few more pages in, we get a Nick in the Afternoon ad for the return of Stick Stickly. Now, this has been going on, this ad, through a few of the uh, comics over the past month or so, and I guess, from what I remember of it, it's essentially a sort of stop-motion animated thing, or not really even stop-motion. It's just basically people holding up popsicle sticks that are dressed as people and having them interact and do sort of wacky things. In fact, Stick looks like he's uh, coming off a jet plane with a uh, sort of wooden spoon girlfriend behind him because the spoon has a bit more curves to him. And uh, he's wearing dark sunglasses and a, uh, a cravat. So there you go. Nickelodeon in the 90s. The next ad is for CD-ROM comic books bursting onto the scene, and it's got uh, an advertisement for Aquaman, Batman, Superman, and Superboy CD-ROM comics. Now, I don't think these are like CBRs where you get the comics on a disc and you can just read the comics. 
I think these are more sort of animatics, and they also, I think, had uh, episodes of the 1960s adventures of the characters, so the Aquaman and the Batman and Superman and Superboy series from that time. Never had any of these, but they look kind of interesting. It's got some decent artwork, and I don't know if you... Well, I'm certain you can probably find a lot of these on YouTube now, especially the episodes of the 1960s DC characters. A few more pages in, we get an ad for if you can't meet the person in person, we'll send them to your door. And it's an ad for some comics that you can buy from this one company that would be signed by various creators that the uh, New York Comic Convention. We've got... Dampire, which I guess is a Vertigo title. Preacher number 19, which is signed by uh, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. New Gods uh, number 12, signed by John Byrne and Bob Wyacek. Nightwing number 1, signed by Chuck Dixon. Uh, Emerald Knight, signed by Ron Mars and Mark McKenna. Supergirl number 1, signed by Peter David. Superman Adventures number 1 by Paul Dini, uh, signed by them, by Paul Dini, Rick Burchett, and Terry Austin. Uh, House of Secrets, number one, Final Night, number one, Bloody Mary, Batman 535, and DC vs. Marvel, number one, signed by Ron Mars and Dan Jerkins and Joe Rubenstein. Uh, these are pretty decent prices. Most of them are starting under... Uh, the highest price one I see is only $50. Uh, I would think having Preacher number 19 signed by Ennis and uh, Dylan would probably be a pretty neat one, because that's only like 1750 but uh, I guess you can order these, and if you couldn't make your way up to the uh, New York City Comic Con, you know, this would be a sort of neat way of you getting some memorabilia from it. And then the next page is for the 10-year anniversary of The Dark Knight Returns with the very beefy-looking Batman drawn by, oh, I guess it was drawn by Miller and inked by Lynn Varney, if I'm remembering right. No, it was inked by Klaus Janssen and uh, colored by Lynn Varley, I'm sorry. But, yeah, 10th year anniversary of it. 10 years since The Dark Knight essentially kickstarted Batmania in a not really that positive way. Well, it got people reading the Batman book, so that's a positive thing. Then a few more pages in, we get the cost of the final night will be remembered forever. In Green Lantern issue number 81, which we'll be covering in a couple of weeks, we've got pretty much the assembled heroes of the DC Universe carrying green flames in their hand with... Kyle Rayner and Green Lantern leading the way, and we really don't know what's going on with this. What's up with the Green Flames? Who did we lose in the final night? Did we actually survive it? I guess we'll just have to wait until next week to find out. After that, we get a house ad for Sovereign 7 and the Legion of the Superheroes Archive, volume number 6, which was coming in October of that month. We've got a house ad for the annuals, or if you order the 12 issues for the year, you get the annual for free, so that's a pretty nice value. Uh, the price for the books, a lot of them, $15 for an annual subscription. Nowadays, $15 would get you, oh, four issues? Three issues? <sighs> kind of sad sometimes. Moving on, we've got an ad for the Amalgam Age of Comics, which features the uh, merged heroes of the DC and Marvel Universe, including, oh, what's the character of Storm and Wonder Woman, but Dark Claw, the Super Soldier, which is Superman and Captain America, Doctor Strange Fate, some really interesting stuff. Uh, I think uh, 
Well, I know that uh, Michael Bradley and I covered this on the Green Lantern Silver Surfer episode that we did a while back, and maybe I'll have to go do a little bit of searching and see if I can find some of this Amalgam stuff, especially the uh, Green Lantern book that they came out with. Then the back inside cover is an advertisement for Jerry O'Connell's sci-fi magnum opus. Yes, September 20th was the premiere of the alternate dimension world-hopping weirdness known only as Sliders. Yes, the guy from Joe's apartment who talked to cockroaches and now is... I think he's still married to Rebecca Romaine. Wow, what a lucky guy. Yeah, the tubby kid from Stand By Me did well. I mean, not with Sliders, but the whole Rebecca Romaine thing. And then the outside back cover is an advertisement for Nights Into Dreams coming in August only on the Sega Saturn, which I think was a pretty landmark game for the Saturn. Uh, I recall it being uh, one of the games that they tried to tout to get people to buy the Saturn, but unfortunately the PlayStation was just really outpacing it and became the more popular console. And The Saturn was kind of the last hurrah for the Sega system. Uh, it basically meant Sega was down to just making games, which I think my kids rented a version of Knights for the Wii recently. It was a fun game, and I think the uh, Knights in the Dreams game was pretty fun and well-regarded as well, but unfortunately we're seeing the uh, death of the uh, Sega system with the uh, Saturn coming out, and that's going to be about it for them. But that does it for my notes, that does it for the ads. Uh, I'd like to mention that the Final Night series has been reprinted. It's in a trade paperback, oddly enough, titled, titled Final Night. Not certain if it's in print now, but uh, you might be able to find it. Chances are, with most of these 90s books, like the other trade paperbacks I've talked about, you're probably better off going to the store and trying to find back issues of the magazine. So go check that out. But that does it for this week. Next week, we're going to continue coverage of Final Night, including issue number three, issue number four, as well as a tie-in with a certain former Green Lantern, now known as Parallax. Yep, uh, if you haven't guessed, Parallax probably has something to do with this whole Final Night thing, and we'll see how things turn out. And in order to help me out with this, I've recruited a special podcast friend to come on the show and give me a little information about this. You'll be hearing from him next week, so look forward to that. 80% less, be talking. But as always, I'd like to thank you all for downloading and listening, and make sure you come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted to respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fight. 
The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new one too. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there as it was a requirement of my new Defonso Corps contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Awards group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenland podcast. The opening music for today's show was Europe and The Final Countdown from their album, aptly titled The Final Countdown. If you'd like to buy this song, buy this CD, or buy a myriad other things, the best place to go to buy all this would be Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is to go through the link at the Two True Freaks website located at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to the page at TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the banner there at the top left part of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you could buy the MP3 of The Final Countdown, buy the CD album, or buy a myriad other things that would tickle your fancy, probably not Europe-related. But anytime that you want to buy something from Amazon.com, make sure that you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com. You click the banner, you buy the stuff, it costs you nothing extra. And it helps keep the lights on here at the Demonzacora family headquarters, because these cannolis certainly aren't going to stuff themselves.